0: Hey guys, Brett here. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to add a special update. So we've typically been recording our episodes about two weeks before we release them, and even in our current social and economic upheaval, it hasn't really seemed to change the relevance of what we discuss, especially considering we focus on content and entertainment and not really current events. But on this episode, uh, we discuss a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, UFOs. And since Josh and I sat down to talk about this paradigm-shifting phenomenon, there has been a very significant development. So the the Department of Defense, which previously had just taken this sort of half-assed approach to verifying the authenticity of the videos... They have now officially released the very bizarre footage, uh, putting an end to any lingering ambiguity. So this is legit. Tom Rogan, a journalist that has covered this topic, said in a recent interview, what we can very confidently assess and what the military says is that they're intelligently controlled, they're machines, and they do not belong to China russia or the united states or to elon musk um the degree of confidence on that is very high on the american side so with that said let's get into the episode and let's get weird together hello listeners and Anya nazeo that's korean for hello now i don't know korean for welcome to the content clearinghouse but i'm brett chisholm and i'm josh evans On today's off-topic discussion, we talk about the Nimitz UFO, or rather, UAP incident, share our current zombie entertainment consumption on the content circuit, and then Josh keeps us on track with a killer Korean zombie flick, Train to Busan. Choo-choo.
1: Movies, shows, and video games, podcasts, books, and their acclaims, let their favorite content become yours.
0: Then clear in house. And it starts right now. So, Josh, I got a question for you. So, how do your friends and family look at you when you talk about UFOs? Um,
1: I'd say they probably look at me the same way you would look at me if the government wasn't throttling our internet these days and we could get Skype to work. I'd say with, uh, I don't know, just acceptance. You know, I don't think I really discuss it with people that are opposed to the idea.
0: Well, you're a very lucky man then. Um, Because I've been talking about UFOs a lot recently. Uh, Now, my wife, Bree, no longer runs away, but she's a bad example because she's literally the most patient person on earth. I'm serious about this. You can test her patience. I do it all the time. Um, just poking at her. Bree, Bree, Bree. Yeah, that and then some other things. Yeah. Um, I also have some friends and family that uh, I've been talking about UFOs recently, and their eyes really glaze over whenever I start talking about possible otherworldly phenomena. Um, but that's just because something happened not too long ago in this murky mysterious, some might say a little sticky world of ufology and this is this is something that was an event that I dare say will not only take the subject of UFOs out of the sticky basement and into the light of the mainstream, but I suspect that this event will take this subject matter, out of kind of the realm of urban legends and myths and into the realm of facts and evidence-based observation what are what are your thoughts on this before i get into the off top for today
1: well first of all um ufology ufology it's kind of like contentology for anyone that's interested and um in the, you know, in the sense that they're both real things <laughs> and and I think that there's been a lot of like you know a lot of disclosure going on lately and it's definitely been trending that way you know it's I remember growing up as a kid and UFOs were they were nothing but fiction you know believing in UFOs was like believing in ghosts and I think that the general understanding of humanity is kind of shifting towards the way we think you know it's yeah, hard to it's I hard to oppose so. the idea that there might be something else out there besides us now that doesn't necessarily mean we've been visited but I think there's some really strong evidence that's been disclosed lately that says that we might have been
0: yeah I I 100% agree and you know I think for people that uh, that might be listening that aren't familiar with this topic, that feel like this might be the realm of conspiracy theories. I'm going to tell you to go ahead and take that tinfoil hat off. And, you know, actually, I know a, uh, this is a joke I wrote. I know a reptilian, (laughs) (laughs) I know a reptilian deep state globalist who helped JFK's real killer fake Obama's birth certificate. And he said tinfoil hats don't even work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he sounds like he'd be the expert. So go ahead, take, take it off because on this off top we are sticking to the facts and this event that i'm speaking of is the USS Nimitz UFO incident.
1: Oh uh, yes, That's a very famous incident actually. It's a uh, I mean, it's been a while, a few years maybe, but there's a lot of there's a lot about this. It was coming out a few years ago.
0: There is, but I, you know, it's surprising to me how many people don't know about this and um, weren't talking about this even before uh, the news cycle became dominated with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but getting into it for the uninitiated, and excuse me if this is offensive, not as woke. Uh, I want to oh. just, <laughs> I want to just. I think that's a compliment these days, buddy. <laughs> it might be. Uh, touche. So let's just define some terms here. Uh, UFO is an unidentified flying object. Now, you would be surprised how many people kind of get this wrong, I feel like. It does not mean an alien spacecraft. It doesn't mean a flying saucer. It doesn't mean swamp gas, ball lightning, anything like that. Well, it definitely doesn't
1: mean those last two. <laughs> but I think that, uh, yeah, that nomenclature has definitely come to be associated with aliens specifically, but yeah, the, I think it is important to, to make the distinction that, you know, it's unidentified and that's pretty much the entire, that's pretty much the entire game.
0: Exactly. Um, so that, that term was coined in 1953 by the air force. Um, but as you pointed out now, it's kind of widely used to mean claimed observations of extraterrestrial craft, or um, alien spacecraft and it's just a magnet for cultural baggage so if you really want to impress your sticky ufologist friends or any paranormal investigators you might come across when we the the unshowered yeah <laughs> the, the unshowered that's me today oh. um, yeah so When, uh, you know, if you, if you want to impress one of these, um, one of these folks, once we end this shelter at home phase of the pandemic, the proper term right now to use is UAP. Uh, this basically means the same thing, but without the, the cultural baggage of UFO, but it stands for unidentified aerial phenomenon or unidentified aerial phenomena. And it is, uh, the preferred terminology for the Navy, Now, that's right. I said Navy, the branch of our nation's Uh, armed forces that my dad was a part of when he flew the A-6 intruder during the Vietnam War. And this is also... Total legend. Um, Also, this is the branch of the military full of serious boats, serious planes, and serious people.
1: And they would probably be the foremost expert on aerial phenomenon other than the air force
0: well said so um our story takes place in 2004 off the coast of california with the united states navy as i've already mentioned and um so i'm going to break down the nimitz ufo or uap incident for you the u.s here we go here we go (laughs) The USS Princeton, uh, a guided missile cruise warship, uh, part of Carrier Strike Group 11, started recording intermittent radar tracks on an advanced passive scanning phased array radar. If you know what the hell that is, thank I've got you for one your service. In my,
1: oh. I've got one in my, in my office, actually. <laughs> you do? Well, thank no, you for your God, service. No. Oh, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> um, so thinking that the brand new radar was malfunctioning, The Princeton Sailors, or Josh, if you would prefer, the Seaman, restarted (laughs) and... Doesn't sound like my preference. (laughs) Um, The Seaman restarted and recalibrated the system, but the tracks became sharper and clearer. So they thought this thing was screwing something up, hit the reset button, and they're not only still there, but they're coming in a little bit sharper. So days later, Navy Chief Petty Officer Kevin Day stationed on the Princeton noticed groups of 5 to 10 radar traces that were traveling southwards in a loose, though fixed, formation at 28,000 feet. And this is in the vicinity of Catalina and San Clemente Islands. I I think that's close to San Diego, off the coast of uh, California. The Navy Chief Petty Officer was startled by their slow speeds of hundred knots at such an altitude because this is an extremely slow airspeed at uh, that high of a altitude but they received confirmation of their presence from radar operators at other vessels the returns continued showing up continuously for almost a week with the sailors observing something moving erratically in the distance through the ship's magnified binoculars. So here's where shit gets real. On November 14th, when a similar event occurred again, an operations officer aboard Princeton contacted a U.S. Marine Corps F-A-18 Hornet and two U.S. Navy F-A-18 Super Hornets from the U.S. Navy, USS Nimitz aircraft carrier uh, and these planes were flying in the area area at the time one of these navy f-18s was piloted by the commanding officer of the uh, strike strike squadron and one of the only pilots that i know of that has speaked so openly about this incident and that is commander david fravor
1: yes very uh a very respectable source on this kind of stuff too Absolutely. Very, un- very unlike the type of sources that you would usually get with this.
0: He's not sticky at all.
1: You know, he probably shaved, <laughs> showers once a day.
0: He's, he's the serious man I was referring to. So the Princeton radio operator instructed the pilots to change their course and investigate the unidentified radar spot. And at one point, a radar operator asked the pilots if they were carrying operational weapons which oh, man. they were not. <laughs> that would be a crazy thing to be asked.
1: Yeah, that is a crazy thing to get get a call about when you're flying off the coast of California.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think the uh, Marine Corps pilot was on a training mission. One of them was on a uh, like a maintenance test flight. I mean, you know this this was all training test flights, just routine stuff. Uh, so, so they're not, they're not carrying out some kind of mission or, you know, they're not carrying weapons. So it's almost as an aside, uh, to go check this, check out this, uh, unidentified radar, um, tracking object that the Princeton is seeing. And, uh, in fact, in some of the interviews, I know that one of the pilots that hasn't been named, I think it was one of the weapons officers that was second, uh, sitting in the second seat, of one of the f-18s mentions later that they were very upset that they didn't know anything about this because they had these radar traces hey uh, said it had been happening for, days for like over so. a week right right so yeah. uh, one of the pilots i think it, and they have not spoken as openly as as commander Fraber, but was actually pretty upset that they were not warned about w- the potential uh dangers i guess involved um, but that's an aside. So the getting back to this infamous day, the weather conditions, excellent visibility, blue skies, no cloud cover, calm sea. As they approached the intercept location, the Marine F-18 was instructed to leave the area as the Navy aircraft approached. So that pilot noticed a round section of turbulent water Um, about 50 to 100 meters, so I guess around 300 feet at its largest in diameter, before returning to the Nimitz without seeing any source for the disturbance and did not pick up any unknown radar contact. The Navy pilots reached the intercept location still with no radar contact, but they looked down at the sea. They also noticed a turbulent area of churning water with foam and frothy waves, quote, the size of a Boeing 737 airplane. Now, this had a smoother area of lighter color at the center, as if the waves were breaking over something just under the surface. And a few seconds later, they noticed an unusual object hovering with erratic movements at about 50 feet above the churning water surface. Now, both uh, Fravor and the other pilot of the F-18, Lieutenant Commander uh, Jim Slott, I think is his name, Slate, maybe it's Jim. Jim Slate, we'll say, uh, he, they both later described the object as a large, bright, white tic-tac, 30 to 46 feet long, with no windshield, no porthole, no wings, no empennage, which is the tail assembly of a typical aircraft, No visible engine, and finally, no exhaust plume. So nam nada
1: on this tic-tac.
0: Yeah. This is a good time to uh, cue the X-Files music. Are we a big enough podcast yet to have X-Files? No?
1: I'm pretty sure they'd come after us. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. Oh, yeah, they would shut us down.
0: Just imagine it. Okay, so... Fravor began a circular descent to approach the tic-tac UAP or UFO, whatever term you want to use. And as he descended, he reported the object began ascending along a curved path, maintaining some distance from his F-18, mirroring its trajectory in uh, opposite circles. So basically uh, flying kind of around, around him and matching his movements. So, Fravor, so if he's uh-huh. if he's diving like
1: let, let's just say he's in a left hand dive is this thing ascending in a right hand spiral the other direction is that what that means? So the way like, that like I understand helix? it
0: is he started descending in a turn and this object started ascending uh, and matching his path in an opposite rotation. So it's definitely responding to him.
1: Yeah. But that 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 sounds kind of like a like a double helix type with one coming down, one going up.
0: Right, exactly. So
1: uh, that's some intricate flying.
0: It's yeah, it's uh, pretty wild stuff. So Fravor then made a more aggressive maneuver, plunging his fighter to aim below the object. But at this point, the UAP accelerated and disappeared in less than two seconds, leaving the pilots. And this is another quote: pretty weirded out.
1: <laughs> Ooh. that is a technical term
0: yeah uh, don't be dramatic boys <laughs> you can drop an F-bomb <laughs> yeah so the two, fighter, the two fighter jets began a new course to a different rendezvous point and within seconds the Princeton radioed the jets that a radar target had just appeared 60 miles away at the predetermined rendezvous point they were headed so anticipating their movement? That's the idea. That's what, it, wow. that's what I interpret in this. Um, uh, so according to Popular Mechanics, a physical object would have had to move greater than 2,400 miles per hour to reach that point ahead of the Navy fighters, and their jets have a maximum speed of Mach 1.8, which is 1,190 miles per hour. So double, double their speed. Yeah. Manimum. And right. And actually um, to get there within seconds would have required an airspeed of at least 42,000 miles per hour. But of course God. they didn't, they didn't have it tracked going from point A to point B in like a linear line. So it's difficult to calculate, but this is what, um, you know, some of these different articles and references that we'll link in the show notes. Uh, have have calculated if it is indeed the same object moving from point A, where Commander Fraver first saw it, to the uh, rendezvous point, which it anticipated.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, though, is if, I mean, if they confirmed it was the same object, because didn't the Princeton say they were tracking multiple groups of these objects flying around for weeks? Right, right. Uh, so, so it I could mean, have I... been another craft,
0: Absolutely, but it still seems like there if it was another craft there must be some sort of like hive communication or you know some some intelligent control to be uh, anticipating that same planes, the Navy aircraft's location and then uh, their future location right Yeah, like I'd say there's almost
1: certainly I mean just the way that it's flying with him in this like helix pattern, that clearly indicates some sort of intelligent control whether it is you know a biological being on board or if it's a remote probe or even if it is some sort of human technology I mean it's it's clearly not just like you know a, a dumb object and I, th- I think that's you know something that kind of control it's not anywhere outside their own possibility they would have communication and be able to you know
0: Perform and fly as a squadron or as a unit with other UAPs. Right, I mean, I I have a feeling that it might have been the same object, and this is totally just, you know, Brett's personal speculation on this, Uh, somebody that thinks about UFOs a lot. You're Um, a certified contentologist. That is true. So ufology is not in the contentology wheelhouse, but it's closely related, as you mentioned. Yeah. But, they both, you know, they have sitting at home and watching showering. YouTube a lot. <laughs> so, um, but Commander Fravor does, you know, they visually see this object and they they see it basically disappear. I mean, it goes somewhere. It doesn't just like phase out like it it is moving and then it's gone in an instant. So, I, you know, I have a feeling that whatever this thing is and whether it was the same object or not, It moves very quickly, and it's very unlikely that it is a terrestrial object, but we'll get into uh, what I think and what Commander Fravor thinks in a little bit. So two other jets went to then investigate the new radar location, um, but by the time the Super Hornets arrived, that object had already disappeared. Then both F-18s returned to the Nimitz, now, after that, ret- the return of the first team to the Nimitz, a second crew took off, and this time they were equipped with an advanced infrared camera or FLIR pod. Now, you have one of these as well in your office. Right next right. to
1: my whatever the hell else you said <laughs> earlier that I apparently have. That's
0: something, something, array, radar. Thank you for exactly. your service. So, uh, FLIR... <laughs> FLIR stands Continue. for, the, I, I'm going to do that. FLIR stands for uh, Ford looking infrared. Now this camera recorded a mysterious moving object in footage that is now commonly known as the FLIR 1 video. I got to take a breath for this because this is so exciting. This FLIR One video that was publicly released by the Pentagon in December of 2017 alongside the revelation of the funding of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Yes, keep getting louder. All of this and more was revealed by the New York Times in what I believe is the biggest breaking news story of the decade that no one is talking about. Yep, it's kind of a crime. I'll be
1: honest with you. It's crazy. So it has yeah. the potential uh-huh. to change
0: the world. It it, it really, really does. does. It really does. Yeah. So, Josh, since yeah. this amateur show that we just launched can only be consumed via audio for now, can you describe to listeners what the Fleur One? of the tic-tac or the UAP footage looks like? Ooh,
1: describing videos in audio format, my forte. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the 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 FLIR 1 video, it's, if you've ever seen uh, any infrared footage from, you know, like an Apache helicopter or something, it's basically either, uh, they call it black hot, which is where objects that are, hotter than the ambient temperature appear black, or white hot, where hotter than the ambient temperature appears white. So the FLIR 1 video starts as black hot, and they're tracking on their uh, on their tracking pod, they have an indicator around this tic-tac, and it's just this black smudge in the middle of the screen. And as it moves, the tracking pod's cursor is kind of like jumping around like it's losing track of it. And there's not a whole lot of resolution to the video when it's in black hot but when it switches over to white hot i think the resolution comes in a little bit clearer and you could see the shape of the tic-tac and the pod uh you know it's periodically locking on and losing tracking the whole time but you can start to make out some detail a little bit like i guess it's the waves or something in the background behind it and you can see how fast it's moving across the ground and that's pretty much like the entirety of the video they show uh, there's a few like uh, on-screen indicators that they in the video that we'll link. They kind of like tell you like what the azimuth and all these other instruments are on the panel. But you know, for the most part, it's really about what's happening in the middle of the screen and it's this tic tac moving around, being tracked by the the FLIR Pod. Now, my issue with video like this is that. It is impressive if you know the story, but if you just take this, a video like this out of context, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on with it. And I think that, you know, when I, when I first heard this story, it was on Joe Rogan, an interview with Commander Fravor, which we can also link. And I think it's really important, you know, if you're going to watch this video, to also listen to him in his own words talk about this, because you could hear like. His emotion and his inflection when he's describing what's going on—it gives you, a, you know, a real feel like what he was seeing
0: through his eyes. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, great point. Just to reiterate, check out our episode show notes for all the references and links, um, including the New York Times article that started it all. An excellent in-depth article from Popular Mechanics, Joe Rogan's interview with Commander Fravor, of course, the official Department of Defense verified FLIR footage that we're talking about. Um, But I'm glad you mentioned that because something I want to kind of uh, um, end my little segment on is Commander Fravor, this is a Navy man whose military career spanned 24 years, and he kind of confirmed the high strangeness of this in an interview in 2017. So this is what he said. It was a real object, it exists, and I saw it. And when asked what he believes it was, he speculated it was something not from the earth. And like you said, this is a guy that knows what he's talking about. So to see him describe it and to hear his own words Uh, You know, he's he's a very serious man and a very credible witness. And when you combine the fact that you have radar identification corroborating highly credible witnesses, you've got video evidence from a sophisticated military camera from one of the most advanced pieces of aviation technology that the United States has ever built, we're looking at something that might totally turn upside down our concept of reality or at least life on uh, uh, on this planet. So um, if you find this fascinating like I do and you want to start doing a little digging, our references are a great place to start. But you'll find soon, if this isn't crazy enough, that this is only one of two high-profile events involving the U.S. military capturing footage of a UAP that has been confirmed by the government as real, straight-from-fighter-jet footage. So this has been fun, Josh, (laughs) but I want to leave you with some words from, from... Some final words from Commander Fravor regarding this sighting. He says, I have no idea what I saw... It had no plumes, wings, or rotors, and outran our F-18s, but I want to fly one. Commander Fravor, we salute you. You're a badass. Hell
1: yeah. I hope you get to fly (laughs) one of those things, buddy. I hope he does. So, you know, I do have some thoughts on this because my opinion of the entire UFO phenomenon is that it essentially has a marketing issue. You know, the, the phenomenon, when you look at it from a point of view like this, it's not hard to accept it. Like, yes, something is happening. But I think the primary problem that's happening with all of this when anytime it comes to disclosure or it comes to a new story coming out is, for the most part, it, they're not typically brought by credible witnesses. It's usually brought by someone like lead singer of blink 182 Tom DeLonge <laughs> who I do appreciate what he's doing for you know for the the idea of disclosure but I I feel like his approach is what you typically get it's people that are maybe a little bit more concerned with being mysterious and seeming like they have secret information than they are of actually just presenting this stuff in a concise manner that doesn't, doesn't have a lot of baggage tacked onto it that makes it hard to dispute, and again, I am referencing a Joe Rogan interview, Uh, again, we can link it with Tom DeLonge, he's got a lot of good information in there, but my god, it is just every third sentence is, oh, sorry, I can't tell you, they don't want me talking about that, I'm like, what, what are you even doing here then? Talk about something else, you know.
0: Yeah, and, I think, and that, I think the, that's across uh-huh. the
1: board. You know, I I, right. I I see that with a lot of like these interviews, these Netflix documentaries, where half of it is like X Files music and stuff. and It's like we don't need it to be mysterious; it's already crazy. You don't need to try to sell it to us that way. What I love about this story is that it's not sold in that way at all.
0: Right, and I I think that's what's really important about this is stories like this, evidence based. Information like this can help bring this topic kind of out of the fringe um, world and into hopefully a more scientific mindset where it can be evaluated with some logic and some reason. Um, I mean, we could get really weird with this and we could get really esoteric with it. I'm actually reading a book right now called uh, Demonic Reality A Guide to the Otherworldly that of not you go Tom DeLonge on me, Brett? <laughs> kind of argues that these these um, these instances are all kind of interrelated. I mean, it, it talks about uh, Blessed Virgin Mary uh, sightings. It talks about fairy, you know, fairy mounds and fairy circles and crop circles and Bigfoot. And I mean, it you know, it's kind of like this all-encompassing theory of these strange kind of esoteric subjects but i think fact it's fact based credibility it's really important to stick to the facts uh and we can talk we <laughs> yes. can talk about we can talk about the weird stuff another time cuz it is fun to talk about the weird stuff too
1: yes i think as long as it's not presented as these two things have to exist together you know it's i don't think there's any reason why fairy circles would necessarily have to be
0: part of the
1: ua ufo theory
0: well maybe i i mean i i am like you i think i am what some might call a nuts and bolts guy or a extraterrestrialist who believes that this phenomenon is a physical object it is probably um something extraterrestrial that is another life form that's viewing us i mean that's my theory but really, if we don't know, it kind of leaves um, that giant question mark and allows the imagination to run wild, which is what attracts so many uh, sticky fringe <laughs> fringe characters. hmm <laughs> um, showered. But, you know, hopefully we can get more evidence, more credibility. There's already been serious journalism surrounding this subject, which is a huge cultural shift and a huge change from kind of the the um, lack of credibility. I mean, anybody that used to take these subjects seriously in the scientific community would be ridiculed. And there is some evidence to suggest that the CIA actually created a campaign to ridicule anybody that took this subject matter seriously. But like I said, that's a subject for a different episode. But definitely check out anything about the USS Nimitz UFO incident.
1: Get on board people. On a lighter note, have you added anything to your content circuit?
0: Uh I did watch Train to Busan. <laughs> I guess I should. Oh, t- <laughs> how convenient. <laughs> it was it is extremely convenient. Um I also finished McMillian's. That's badass. I also finished the book World War Z and I'm reading a new book. And I'm making sourdough bread. Have I mentioned sourdough bread to you yet? so many times,
1: Brett
0: <laughs> <laughs> Would you consider sourdough bread to be content i I've spent so much time reading sourdough bread recipes and watching sourdough bread YouTube videos that it's it's starting to feel like consumable content, yes <laughs> oh man, fascinating <laughs> fascinating world of
1: dough. So, you were sounds like you were on a little bit of a zombie kick, yeah, do you think that's related to uh what's happening right now? uh I don't know. I mean, I've always been on a zombie kick. uh I'm talking about zombies tonight uh so it's hard to say, I'm sure there are people that are just consuming any kind of apocalyptic content right now, but I feel like that's a pretty far stretch from the relatively mundane and boring apocalypse that we're experiencing currently yeah.
0: <laughs> that's true i've i've seen a pretty good internet meme or a couple variations of this uh comparing somebody's expectation for what they would wear in the apocalypse and then what they're actually wearing and come on people we all know we're in sweatpants And, you know, just that, like, old uh, ratty T-shirt that we like to sleep in and just kind of lounge around in. Nobody's wearing body armor. Nobody's tactical right now. Nobody's tactical, that's for sure.
1: I mean, since I love zombies, um, in preparation for my content piece tonight, which you mentioned, Train to Busan, uh, that's what I'm going to be going into depth later. But... I've been playing this game on PS4 called Days Gone which is man it is this intense and amazing zombie game so you're a you're basically like an outlaw biker and it's in a uh, it's in a zombie apocalypse it's like 2 years after the fall of man and the really significant feature in this game is the hordes something that a lot of video games don't do that zombies absolutely need to function properly in in uh fiction is the horde you know it has there has to be this giant wave of zombies and that's pretty much like the key gameplay element of this game you'll come up to these you know 300 to four to 500 uh strong hordes of zombies and they're like the fast 28 days later zombies and i've never played a game that made me feel like you know like when you're a kid and you're you're swimming in the in the uh in the lake and right as you start to get out you just have like that adrenaline rush, you're afraid of like Jason Voorhees or Jaws or any number of terrifying water creatures are gonna like grab you and pull you back in right before you escape. You know what I'm talking about? I, I don't think I have that fear. Well, maybe not I, that particularly I might but now any kind of any kind of fear where you feel like you're right on the edge of something getting you you know it's something like i know if, when i was a kid i had that all the time like this crazy adrenaline rush and this game is like built on that because you'll be you'll be running as fast as you can and in your headphones you hear just like this like roiling wave of zombies like growling and snarling like tearing up the ground behind you and if you oh, swing man. the camera around they're just like two steps behind you and then the game is built around you fighting them and like finding ways to lead them through these choke points and set off bombs and shoot them Dude, it is so good bro is that is it a single player game or is there like a uh, co-op mode no no multiplayer component it's single player it's just a open world uh 3d kind of like action game rpg light
0: days gone man, ps4 days gone. exclusive that sounds awesome it's i love great. a good zombie game oh man it's the best anything else in your content circuit no nah, that's about it man nice that's a good one that's a good pairing it's like a train to busan appetizer it's a fine
1: wine <laughs> yes exactly a fine undead wine. Oh, perfect. Well-aged. All right. Well, uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll get in some content. Ooh, content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest.
0: Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Brie and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well... It is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ
1: any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. (gasps) Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps
0: ever. Clear it out. All right. We're back on the content clearinghouse. So I did kind of uh, ruin the surprise of what your content piece is, Josh, and think think uh
1: oh, I think, the, uh, I <laughs> think the, uh, the podcast title may have done that, anyways. It's no, no that's surprise.
0: Good. That's a good point. Whew, pressure's off.
1: Well, since we already brought it up, uh, today I'm talking about Train to Busan, which is the uh, 2016 zombie masterpiece. I say that about everything, but that's what it is. It's a masterpiece. Uh, It's directed by Yeon Sang-ho, and this is one of the highest-ranking films in South Korean history. In my opinion, this is the best piece of zombie content Besides World War Z, the book by Max Brooks, not the movie, not the uh, not the insulting and atrocious movie, but the book, which you mentioned earlier that you've been uh, that you were reading recently, right?
0: Yes. And I, I would like to say I don't think World War Z, the movie was as terrible as you just made it sound. But it is nothing like the book at all, other than the fact that there's zombies in it. That is the only similarity that they have. But you're absolutely right. World War Z, the Max Brooks book, is hands down one of the best books I've ever read. And so, Train good. to Busan, I really enjoyed it, but it also left me feeling very unsettled. I felt like it was kind of like a like a nightmare that was really entertaining to watch. But is that is that something that I th- that you really like in movies? Because it's just so hard to like make somebody that thinks about books and podcasts in free fall while skydiving is that maybe something that you look for to to be to get that adrenaline rush from a video game or to to be unsettled in a movie?
1: Uh, I don't know I I feel like with uh, consuming like passive media like a movie I can disconnect myself from it pretty well and just kind of appreciate the storytelling and like the effects that go into it and just kind of the mythology I really like the mythology in horror movies, you know, like they have like a really solid internal logic, which this movie does, which we'll get into that a little bit later, but you know, it's just to me, like a a movie like this isn't really scary. I did spend like the good part of my twenties, desensitizing myself to horror. I would fall asleep watching the Texas chainsaw massacre. (laughs) And uh, so I might have a little bit higher uh, threshold for horror now, but I really just like, you know with a, a movie like this, the artistry of it yeah so so before I get into the actual movie, I did want to tell you about this dream that I had uh, I had I had this zombie dream where I mean I know hearing someone's dreams is usually the most boring thing in the world but bear <laughs> with me I okay. uh, <laughs> i I had a dream that I, I lived in this like three story apartment building, and there was a zombie apocalypse. I mean that's just like the starting point for all of my dreams but uh, <laughs> i I had like a like a tactical moment in the dream where I was like, okay, we can go down to the bottom floor, we can knock out like the bottom eight steps and then to get back up into the building. We can use the runner boards on the side that are connected to the walls, like spread our legs wide and shimmy our legs up the runner boards until we get above like zombie head height. And now we can go up and down the steps, but the zombies can't. And then I woke up and I was, you know, a little bit later, I was reading the zombie survival guide by Max Brooks. And like this exact same technique was explained in the zombie survival guide. And I, you know, I haven't read the book yet, but it was just like this. This serendipity between like me thinking about the zombie apocalypse and Max Brooks thinking about it. And what I took away from that was that I think I'd be pretty good in a zombie apocalypse. Wow.
0: That's, (laughs) that's unbelievable. You are literally dreaming up survival tactics. Nothing but useful dreams. That is incredible. That is an, that is an amazing skill. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: I'm blown away right now. All right, well, now that's out of the way. Let's get into Train to Busan. Um, so this movie, a, a short rundown of the plot. Like the- Now, really
0: quick for our listeners out there, is this going to be uh, no spoilers, light on the spoilers, medium, or are we going to spoil or burn the shit out of this?
1: Uh, I'm thinking like light to medium. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna try not to give away too anything or anything that's too serious about the plot because okay. there are a lot of really cool plot points. Uh, it's that, definitely
0: worth seeing.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't want to yeah, give okay. away the
0: best parts, but
1: I, there are some so things we're that medium, I talk we're talking. We're
0: talking medium rare in the uh, spoiler burger. Exactly, like it's blue.
1: Okay. okay. So,
0: uh, synopsis of the
1: story: uh, it follows the father character Siok Wu. And his daughter, Suan, or Suan, and uh, it's it's basically like about their relationship being kind of strained between the father who's divorced from Suan's mother, and he's kind of this inattentive workaholic. And in an effort to win his daughter's affection, he agrees he agrees to take her on the train to Busan to see her mother for her birthday, which is the set, which is the next day. And that's the basic setup. They do a really good job of kind of showing the relationship between the father and the daughter. So when things start to happen later, you have this really good like personal connection to the characters. So I really appreciate that. Like a, a good, uh, a good bit of character
0: development at the beginning. So
1: the, now doesn't he
0: try to buy his daughter's love with a Nintendo switch only to have her look over and you know, he sees that he are, she already has the Nintendo switch.
1: Yeah, it's the we. It's from a slightly oh, sorry. different time yeah, that's right. but yeah, it's ex- that's right. it's like you know that's kind of like him being this inatt- inattentive right workaholic. You know, he he doesn't really know anything about her, but you know, like his world is based on work, and so he thinks that you know love is about money, or at least like respect is about money.
0: Right. That's this is when I first started feeling like, oh my god, this is a nightmare. That is so awkward.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's good though. It's good character development.
0: It is, And then one of the,
1: you know, something that I really found that I liked about this movie was watching a movie in subtitles, especially one that's in Korean, you know, that the Korean language, it just seems so absolutely foreign to me. You know, the, the word sounds and the iconography are vastly different from, from English and It started making me think that the fact that English sounds normal at all to me is just a matter of perspective. It's so strange. Like the concept of language is so strange. It's so bizarre that there are, you know, over 6,500 different languages spoken on earth. And the instinct to communicate from humanity, it must just be so hard coded in the human mind that... Humans from different patches and different walks of life and different areas on Earth—they couldn't help themselves but create speech and this just torrential wave of communication at the dawn of man. And what that leaves us with is 6,500 different languages.
0: And yeah, that's that's cool. I do, I really do like the uh, Korean language. I think it's very pleasing to the ear, just like Japanese and. Just like the opposite of Mandarin, the worst sounding language to my ears. Oh, man. I'm not a fan of uh, listening to Mandarin. I mean, I've kind of found that
1: I love hearing someone speak a native language that's different than my own almost across the board, regardless of what it is or what the language is, just because it puts into perspective how strange that, you know, that our. Brains assign meaning to mouth sounds, and how fast and effortless we can process our own native language. It's just like a just a fascination fascination of the human brain that i realized. You know, watching a few subtitled movies lately, that I you know starting to see that I really like that, and I think I'm going to be consuming more subtitled movies now in the future because of that.
0: Yeah, I'm. You know what? I actually watched some some English movies with subtitles on, much to my. Uh, wife's uh hidden annoyance. Bree, if you're listening to this episode, I, I know you don't like when I turn on the subtitles to fifty percent of the movies because I really want to follow the plot better. And for some we'll reason, subtitle r- this uh, episode the- for Okay, perfect. She'll love that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so getting back to the
1: getting back to the movie, um, so in the morning when they're leaving, you know, heading to the train station, there are these subtle hints that something is happening. Uh, Like they almost get hit by these fire trucks. And then, you know, they look off in the distance. They notice like a high rise, like the 30th floor is on fire. And there's like this ash raining down from the sky. I just, I'm a big fan of when zombie movies start this way, where you're seeing like the last remnants of a normal human response to the disaster before the entire system is overloaded. And that's kind of like, you know, that's what those fire trucks signify that they're, no one really has a grasp on what's happening yet. And they're trying to respond to it with just uh, standard human problem solving. Like, you know, there's fire, there was some firefighters at it, which without thinking like this is going to make it way worse.
0: Hmm.
1: So when, once I get to the train, uh, patient zero for the train, which most of this movie takes place in the train. Patient zero is, uh, just this character that, she uh, she runs in from the platform right as the train do, train doors are closing at the last second and you know to someone who is escaping an attack like that that's a very logical decision you know they're injured and scared and they think that they're running for their life but as the train pulls away you know you get like these side eye glances of people looking out onto the platform and they see you know uh somebody tackling someone else And they don't realize that that's signifying that there is this, you know, this zombie uh, virus passing through the population. They just think like, oh, there's like a riot on the on the train uh, platform. And, you know, that logical decision of that nameless victim to run and jump on the train is pretty much what kicks off the entire plot here because the incubation period for the zombies and this is the the internal logic and the mythology that i love so much the incubation period from bite to full conversion is like seconds to at the most a couple of minutes so in almost no time at all like half the train becomes this living wave of undead and the undead in this movie are they're the fast zombies like the 28 days later the rabies style they're visual hunters which plays a big part, you know. Them being able to see is a very important part of right, of right, of their abilities, and they're impervious to pain and damage. I mean, you see, you see them fall from hundreds of feet and get up immediately and just start pursuing people. the uh, The effects are also great too. They have like this horrifying, like shaky gait, bleeding eyes. The eyes are whited over, and then you can tell they do something really cool with the effects, like when they're editing the zombie movement they're definitely applying some sort of like erratic frame rate kind of effect on them because you know like a, you would never see a human move in this way
0: so they yeah, do a really looks good job it's like sped up or something like that yeah it's like, like they're
1: sped up they're cutting out frames so it's like they're kind of like jumping around it's real it's really fantastic it, my favorite zombies i've ever seen in a movie so something i really love in this movie is that they use the word zombie have you have you seen zombie fiction where they don't use zombie? It's like where they dance
0: around that. Uh, I mean, I, I think in um World War Z they they do use the word, but it's not the main terminology. And that's one of the fun things about that Max Brooks book is that they have, you know, every society or every culture has, like, maybe a slightly different term for it. Or they might call them grunts or Zs or Zed heads. Um, but they do say the word zombie. Um, but I, I did like how it's not, it, you know, they didn't totally ignore that term. But they also, you know, didn't make it, um, like, the the most primary nomenclature. You know, yeah. I liked like the creativity, so I, I kind of like when something like doesn't use that term. But I also do like when they just accept it as like, oh yeah, we know what zombies are. We there was books written about this before it happened. Kind of you know that kind of idea.
1: Yeah, like I I guess the one that I'm really thinking about where they don't use zombie. And if anybody's watched The Walking Dead, you know I'm talking about The Walking Dead. I mean mm-hmm. I love The Walking Dead. They've really pulled that. Th- Show out of a hole. It's become something amazing lately. But you know, it's it's always kind of bothered me that they don't use the word zombie. And I read that uh, Robert Kirkman, the writer, he wanted to place The Walking Dead in an alternate reality, one that had no zombie fiction. But what that does in our reality is it gives you all these like really awkward zombie terms, like roamer or biter or walker. All these things that like. They're not as awesome as zombie so yeah (laughs) i really do love when a movie embraces zombie and just like yes this is zombie fiction that's what this is and you know the walking dead does its own thing it does it very well but this is like a nod towards someone who's a big zombie fiction aficionado like myself and i really appreciate that they do it that way you know it it places it as this is the world that you live in right now this is the world that has zombie fiction, the world that brought Night the Living Dead and The Walking Dead and the you know movie like Train to Busan, that's the world that this zombie outbreak is happening in. And mm-hmm. so I love how it just kind of grounds it and like, yep, this could be happening right down the street for me. I would be calling them zombies. Yeah, that's a great point. It almost adds realism yeah. to it. Yeah, like not calling them zombies makes it seem like, okay, this is a fantastical story from another universe. Right, right. Another trope that, uh, well, a trope that this movie avoids is the hit him in the head trope. I mean, I assume that that would work in this movie. I think, I guess, if you destroyed the brain, the zombie might die. But I don't think you ever see a single person ever stop an individual zombie, no matter what they do. You know, all all of their efforts are just buying time as far as attacking the zombies. You never see them like, oh, yeah, I got to stab him in the brain and it kills him, which is kind of cool. Like that's a that's a different take on the zombie genre because hit him in the head or stab him in the head has become such a, a standard as far as zombie movies go.
0: Right. That's a good – that's an interesting point because I did not make that observation watching Train to Busan. But now that you mention it, it, it really was just creating opportunities for them to escape – to you know the the next safe area, if only for a few moments. I yeah, can't remember a single time where they like stopped even an individual zombie. It's That's all just
1: speed bumps. They're I don't think they ever take one down, which just means the problem's getting worse and worse by the minute. Right. So what that results in is some of the most terrifying zombie scenes from any zombie story. You know the the train, other than maybe a an aircraft seems like the worst environment where you could have a zombie outbreak. And you know, like you say, they're moving from relative safety to relative safety and it's all, they're always just one step ahead. If even that of the zombies, but occasionally they'll get like these tenuous holds on the situation and there are these like these nice moments of quiet that break out that give you kind of like a breather as the audience to kind of catch up and get
0: ready for like the next intense section of the movie. Yeah. This, I I think that's a huge uh, drawing point of this movie for me is just the setting of it. It's like, okay, you know, you don't want snakes on a plane. You don't want zombies on a train. I mean, that's, you know... It rhymes, just like, so you know it's true. <laughs> you know it's true. <laughs>
1: so did you... Uh, what did you think about the scenes where uh, they're watching, like, the government reports? You know, they get, like, before everything it really goes down on the train, they're getting, like, these government reports on uh, the screens. Like, I thought those were... I thought they were really well done, but I wanted to see what oh, your yeah. thoughts were about them. If you if you had any thoughts on
0: those. Oh, scenes. that's that's my favorite thing about a genre like this is because that really puts you kind of in their shoes. I mean, even even when it is, it's still subtitled, but it looks like a Korean news station with you know Korean anchors. You can't really understand exactly all the things that are on the screen, but it looks you know, it just adds that sense of realism of like, okay, this is exactly what would be playing on the news during an outbreak like this. And that's kind of how the entire, uh, book World War Z is based on, you know, there, there really is no, um, God view, uh, narrative. It's just people being interviewed. Right. So I, I just love that. I love that concept of, um, I don't know, just trying, trying to like paint a picture of what's happening as you're trapped on a train and you're getting all your information from like you know it shows him scrolling through uh different things on a cell phone and talking to somebody that's in the office like uh, hey boss uh, this is really bad or watching the news that's on the screens on the train uh, or they see dude, like they I pass
1: through a train station without slowing down and they like they look out on the platform and see like the waves of zombies. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, maybe it's not so bad on this horror train that we're on. You know, like they have like these really, these really interesting, like uh, these viewpoints into what's happening in the world at large. And it kind of like puts their like moment to moment into perspective, but something I man, what I really loved on this news report. And this seems this seems so real. Like this is what would happen in our world. The news anchor says to the best of our knowledge, your safety is not in jeopardy. And when they, when that line plays, it's from like a helicopter shot of the city with like fires and explosions going off everywhere. <laughs> like that line, that seems like exactly what we, what we would be told, especially when viewed in the light of the CDC mask uh incident that just happened where the C D C told, you know, us not to worry about using masks because they're useless. You know, like that's a that's a very real world example of how the government would just try to I don't know, just suppress people from doing anything in right. an attempt to maybe, I don't know, let them get away? Who knows?
0: Yeah, or right. yeah, try you know, trying to stop people from buying up masks or just overall you know, trying to provide like a false sense of security, like you know, this is just the flu. It's not that big of a deal. So many people die from the flu. Only a few people have died from this. You know, being a zombie is not that bad, guys. Seriously, you're you're immortal. You'll live forever. Yeah, it's the fountain of youth.
1: <laughs> so if you're a you know if you're a fan of zombie culture, you know that almost all zombie fiction is some sort of social commentary. Like uh, Night of the Living Dead, the original was like commentary on the racial tensions in America, and then Dawn of the Dead, which followed it, was commentary on the consumerism-based economy of the world, which is why you know it was, it was set in a mall, and you know the the zombies were like stand-ins for these like mindless consumers. You know, George Romero, like he had a lot of he had a lot of things to say, and that kind of set the precedent for the zombie genre um I, I found an article about again the walking dead this is on a bs bsuenglish.com, an article by shannon walter and he said that the walking dead i'd never thought about this before but he said the walking dead is about um it's about america's desensitization towards violence and that's characterized through the way like the various leaders in the world they'll come they'll come to and they'll hold power through the use of violence and also most of the characters will just, like, casually kill the zombies without any concern to, like, their former humanity.
0: And he wrote a whole paper about it. It's pretty interesting. We'll link it in the show notes. Hmm, that's but, interesting. Uh, I always kind of t- took away that the zombies were not the threat. It was the humans. That that was kind of my feeling on The Walking Dead. But I only watched the first couple seasons. I haven't been... Uh, been following it but that was like the the takeaway for me was like yeah zombies are bad but humans are worse
1: yeah that's definitely a big part of the show especially now and if seriously if anyone has had uh thoughts about the walking dead not being what it used to be you should seriously check out season 9 and 10 like it is way back on track but the big social commentary on train to busan was the uh And this came from an article, a masterpiece of social commentary, Train to Busan, by Jack Buchanan. This is on uh, filmosophy.co. We'll link it. Uh, (laughs) He says that, and if you've seen the movie, you'll notice, the the, uh, social hierarchy in South Korea is particularly complex. Conformity and social expectations, place of birth, job, Place of residence, accent, and clothing are all a factor in the endless judgment of status in the country.
0: So yeah, that's pretty typical of of Asian culture for sure. Like we live in a very individualistic culture, and for a lot of Asian cultures, um, probably most if not all Asian cultures, it is about the group collective coming first, and you know your your place in that group, um, and the group coming before your needs as an individual is, is definitely um, kind of a cultural priority. Yeah. So
1: that's, I mean, that seems like, you know, that's a big part of this movie. Um, I do want to ask you a question about that culture. Cause I haven't spent any time in it myself, but I wanted to also read this other quote because it really kind of encapsulates what this movie is about. Uh, this guy, jack buchanan he wrote the best way to get rich in the korean culture currently is to be born that way inequality of opportunity will make it increasingly difficult for poor children to move up which is expected to lead to more conflict between the different social classes so this movie is all about the social classes and have you found that i don't know how much time have you spent time in south korea
0: I spent a lot of time in in South Korea, but I don't think I could speak uh, with any kind of expertise or knowledge about the inner workings of the hierarchy um, of the society. But I can definitely see that. I mean, it's there are um, definitely good jobs in technology that it's it's kind of like you have to get with one of these jobs when you're young and you build seniority. Like say you want to work for Samsung, like when you get hired and working for this company and then working your way up the ladder through sheer time and not necessarily talent, but just being there longer. Um, I I do I have heard that that's a very very important part of the culture. But I I love South Korea and I feel like it's it's. As far as other Asian countries go that I've visited, it's probably the most like the West. I mean, if I had to, if I got kicked out of the US for some reason and I was forced to go live in Asia for some reason the rest of my life, I mean, I love Japan, but it would be very difficult for me to build a life in Japan because their culture is just so different from ours and it's very, very difficult to ever feel... Uh, like not an outsider in Japan and I feel like South Korea you really almost feel at home there I mean it's it's just super inviting and welcoming and friendly and just their their like love of technology their love of freedom I mean it, it really is uh eerily similar I'd say to the United States I mean we must have had some pretty significant uh influence just that like you know western culture being exported uh, to different cultures that you hear about. I mean, South Korea, it, it's awesome. It's a great place. I love it.
1: I mean, this movie definitely made me want to visit South Korea because it just, I mean, San Zombies this looks like a pretty amazing place. You know, it yeah. Seems, <laughs> and the way, wait till it, they
0: get the zombies
1: yeah, figured out. Hopefully they'll keep it contained and long enough for all these zombies to die off, and then I can go visit. You know, they – the way they present like the characters even with the language barrier and the subtitles it's all things that you can relate to you know it's all all the troubles that they had before the zombie apocalypse kicks off it all seems like things that would happen in our lives here in America except for the big you know the big kind of the kicker with this social commentary piece is there's the the CEO character in this movie ah, and yes. I feel like you know the way they characterize him I feel like this is like a real jab at their culture because you know he does not have by any means a good idea ever he's he's all of his decisions are self centered they're just objectively terrible and wrong he's not a leader in anything other than a name and you know the fact that he's wearing a suit but everyone seems to kind of like blindly follow him because he's in charge, you know, the like quote unquote, because he's just yelling at them and they know he has like this social status. And I feel like, you know, that's the big, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but that's the big social commentary of this. You know, it's about not blindly following leadership
0: because ultimately- That's interesting.
1: You know, ultimately that's that's a big part of the story is what happens when you follow people like this.
0: Right. That's interesting. I mean, I think, though, that that character, you know, might not be just uh, some kind of commentary on Korean culture. I mean, it, it could be commentary on CEOs of corporations. I mean, I, their corporations are built much in the same way as they are here. And don't you think an American CEO would act in a very similar way? I mean, totally self centered no regard for anybody else's safety, bossing people around saying, you know, do you know who I am? I'm imp- I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think you could totally just, uh, put, you know, English, American characters, English is the language, have that guy be an American CEO and it would totally make sense.
1: Definitely. I feel like that's like a, you know, like that's a cultural touchstone that it may be very significant, in the culture, but uh, you know, I feel like the director, Yan Sang ho, I mean, he he's probably like, I have a message and I'm sure this will resonate anyone who's ever worked under a corporate asshole. And yeah. <laughs> you know, it's important to know that they're only important because you work for them. That's the only that's the only significance that this person may have in your life. So I just thought that was, you know, it's a it's a really interesting part of the story and I really like that that's, you know, the the social commentary they have it wrapped around.
0: Oh, but yeah. Yeah. Enough social he's commentary such an asshole. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's bad. Enough of that. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, so, you know, this movie has like the best instances of calm to storm with absolutely no warning. You know, if Trained to Bassans taught me anything, is that you never want to be leading the way in a, in a fast zombie apocalypse. That just means that you're the first line of food when you round a corner into like a wall of zombies. <laughs> That's... Your tactics would definitely change based on just one or two encounters in this world. But what it made me think about was... Brett, do you remember when we went to the 13th floor uh, haunted house and did the zombie laser tag? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... Here at uh, Colorado, we have a haunted house where after uh, after Halloween, they convert the entire thing into like a zombie experience, where they give you they give you these laser tag guns that look and feel like real weapons. You go They're ahead, heavy, dude, and they recoil They're like full yeah, weight. Oh yeah! And all the all the actors inside the uh, inside the haunted house now have like these laser tag headbands on, and they'll just like run at you and charge. And they really don't stop until you shoot them. And that was, you know, like after about like five minutes in there, we had just kind of naturally fallen into this like egg-shaped phalanx where we had six degrees of protection facing every direction. It was really cool to, you know, in a controlled environment to like go and see like, oh, how would how would just this group of friends handle getting together with some guns in a zombie apocalypse? It was really fascinating. And if anyone has the opportunity to do a haunted house like this, you should definitely check it out. Although it will ruin all other haunted houses for you in the future.
0: You could just bring that laser gun to other haunted houses and see how well that goes. I'm sure that would work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's funny that you brought that up because I think of that um, experience with you and our friends uh, about once a year around uh, end of October. And I just With a smile on my face, remember fondly how quickly you took the charge and how serious you were. I mean, this was not a night out uh, to have a little fun. You were in full once in a lifetime opportunity. (laughs) It was it was time to get serious, and I loved it, man. I mean, I you know I just love losing myself to any kind of experience. Like I I want to get the most out of an experience, but sometimes I do have a tough time, just like. Pretending like I have a tough time as an adult using my imagination. Bro, and that's my whole life. Experiencing that full immersion. But when you have somebody like you that uh, dreams about zombie tactics and you just can't wait to take the mantle, uh, it can it really helps pull me into the experience and I remember being terrified and like really trying to like go over in my head okay now I got the right flank Breeze got the left flank I got to make sure that we like clear the corners like everything you know everything you had basically briefed us up like okay I've thought about this guys this is how this is going to go down I we survived I can't Staircase believe it. We a running survived. board dream
1: <laughs> of course I can't believe we survived the haunted I can't house it.
0: we were all, one of the only groups that made it out all those other people are still in there Still in there, moaning and wandering around aimlessly. That was my zombie impression. That was pretty good. That was really good, Brad. (laughs) Um, If
1: this doesn't work, you should be an actor.
0: Okay. (laughs) All right.
1: (laughs) Uh, right. So I don't want to ruin it, but this movie does have the single best zombie scene I've ever seen. It involves a skateboarder and helicopters, and I don't want to say anything else because I want everybody to go out and watch Train to Busan. But when you see this scene, I think it's going to blow your mind, especially if you're into zombies. Like, if this is your forte, this is like, oh, that's it. That's the best zombie scene that's ever existed. So, skateboarder and helicopters. All right. (laughs) All right. if you like zombies, subtitles, or trains, this movie pretty much has it all. My final thought on Train to Busan is that this movie hurts in a way that I could never imagine a zombie movie could doing. And that really makes this movie mean something. So everybody go out, watch train to Busan.
0: Come Josh, that's Korean for thank you. I'm sure I mispronounced that. It's been a while since I've been there. Um, but train to Busan, I really appreciate you sharing your content piece and clearing it out on the content clearing house. For our listeners, we do have a Facebook page and an Instagram. You can find us uh, at The Content Clearing House. Tune in next week. We're going to clear some more content out of our brains. Thanks for listening.